Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter, and we're going to be in chapter 2, the primary text. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, maybe you uh, have a Bible at home, forgot it. Feel free to use this and then leave it uh, back somewhere where you can get it back and use it again. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that with you. So 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, and our primary text uh, are verses 13 through 17. Though what I want to do in a minute is go back and uh, spend a little time on verse 11 and 12. But let me read you the passage, and what I want to do is read it to you from one of the translations from the New American Standard. And then I'm going to read it to you from one of the paraphrases, and let's just kind of just let this sink into us. Here you go from the New American Standard. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by Doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Here's Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of those verses. Make the master proud of you by being good citizens. Respect the authorities, whatever their level. They are God's emissaries for keeping order. It's God's will that by doing good, you might cure the ignorance of the fools who think you're a danger to society. Exercise your freedom by serving God, not by breaking rules. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. Love your spiritual family. Revere God. Respect the government. Uh, now, we want to get in and, and spend some time and unpack that, but I, I want to go back and pick up where Tim left off and, and remind you again of verses 11 and 12. And th this, is, this is hopefully going to be a very big point and one that either is an aha moment and maybe for the first time you go, wow, I didn't make that connection, or at least a great reminder where you go, okay, I get it. I, I want to read to you, I, I, I don't know how many commentaries I'm using for the, this series, but, but from three of the commentators, as they look at verses 11 and 12, okay? Peter begins, one writes, the exhortation of his letters by addressing his readers as dear friends term might have been ruined for us after the debate the other night, but so, dear friends, before he begins now, he calls us friends, get this, because before he begins his difficult instruction about how we're to live in relationship to unbelievers within the society. Though they may be estranged from their neighbors because of their faith in Christ, he reminds them that they have his apostolic affection. The verb exhort introduces Peter's central concern and marks these verses as a transition to the body of the letter in which Peter exhorts Christians to live the right in a right relationship with their society. So there's this exhortation that's coming, the author says, a bit of a pivot point in here. 
and, and, and Peter's going to give us this exhortation, and it's how we're to live in, in, in this culture. Here's another author. Here Peter begins what is structurally the second half of the letter, whereas the first part is primarily theological in focus with occasional application to life. This part is generally practical with emphasis on shorter theological statements, whereas the first half contains general exhortations in holiness and in love and in trusting God and implied this half is very specific instruction showing how believers are to practice holiness and trust in God in actual life situations. Though it's an oversimplification, it may be said that chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 5, verse 11, which is going to take you all the way to essentially the end of the book, gives us specific application to the general teaching of chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 10. Okay? You're starting to, to glaze over, but let me give, 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 give you one more here. Okay? Peter moves, this author writes, to a surprising and urgent application of the teaching he's just given. He has been emphasizing the status that Christians have as the people of God chosen by him and drawn into privileged fellowship. They are a priestly nation the recipients of God's grace and favor. Why should Peter remind them of the status? And that's what I want to get. Why is he doing this? Why did he go back? Last time that I taught from this text was in chapter 1, verse 13, that began with the therefore. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. He made that point there I want to make again today. Why does he remind us of that? He would prepare them in this process for their service. Just because they're God's royal people, they can be servants. Their example is Jesus. So, so here was the point. And, and uh, I don't think it was all new to me, but, but for whatever reason, when I was teaching last time, it, it just like this became this massive singular point of the day. And um, I always assume then it is for you. But I got one email. Aaron Klusman sent me an email uh, where he basically came back and, 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 and regurgitated all that I said and then went on to say how big this was. So it's either I didn't make the point well or you already knew it. I'm plenty comfortable if you already know it. But, but this, this is gigantic. All of the imperatives that Peter's giving us here flow from the fact that we're already in right relationship with Christ. Okay? Here's the point. Because I'm chosen by God and because I'm adopted as his kid and because I'm in union with him, because I'm a Christian, the phrase that Paul uses, one of his favorite phrases, because I'm in Christ, now I can live this way. I behave this way, not in order to be accepted by God, but because I'm accepted by God. God doesn't call me because I'm qualified, just the opposite. I'm qualified because God's called me. God doesn't come along and say to every person, start doing this stuff. 
He doesn't, in essence, say, clean up your act, and then we'll talk seriously about you being my kid. He doesn't do that. He comes along in an act of his will, causes us to be born again, brings us into right relationship with God, and now he says, because all of these things are true, now live like it. So it's the pattern that we've seen in the past when we've looked at some of Paul's writings, where he may take, like in the book of Ephesians, uh, three chapters of what we would call intense doctrine with maybe a little bit of application, and then get to chapter 4, and there's that pivot, the therefore, and he says, therefore, now, because all of that is true, now we can talk about life. Now we can talk about how you should live. Now we can talk about your relationships with your kids and your relationship with each other and your relationship with, with, uh, with at work. Now we can talk about how the spirit should begin to work in your life. That is a gigantic point. And if I miss that, all I'm going to do is just fall into a bunch of religion. If I just bring this and start to read it and go, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And I know that's how a lot of people think. And I know it because they will tell me. Now, they won't say it that way. They'll say, listen, I'm here and I'm trying to clean up my act. I'm trying to get my act together. Thinking about coming to church, thinking about coming to that priority living study, thinking about doing this, but first I want to get my act together. God never says, get your act together and then come to me. He says, come to me. That's the only way your act is ever going to be together. Because you can't put it to yourself together. You're Humpty Dumpty. You've fallen. You can't put yourself back together again, but that's what God's in the job of doing. That, that, that is a massive principle and truth. That, that all of these imperatives flow from that therefore. So that's what he's saying back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let me read it again from the paraphrase. Friends, this world isn't your home. He's just grinding this point home. So don't make yourself cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. Live an exemplary life among the natives so that your actions will refute their prejudice. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. So, so look at the terminology. Beloved. So he's reminding them they're in this relationship. They're, they're united in Christ. He speaks to them as those who know and love Christ. I urge you as, and he picks imagery from Genesis 23, 4 and Psalm 39, 12. Imagery of aliens and strangers. He said, this is who you are. An alien is one who lives in a place that's not his true home. He said, that, this, isn't, this isn't home for you. Now, for these people, remember chapter 1, verse 1? They are, are residing aliens scattered throughout and all of these regions, scattered out of suffering and persecution. So this is great comfort to them. He's saying to those of them who, who <laughs> wandering around, they may have nothing. They've been uprooted. They may have little or nothing of the, of the earthly treasure. He said, don't worry about this. This isn't home. This isn't your final destination. For most of us, here, it's probably a little bit different. Now, things may have changed in the last three or four years, but three or four years ago, if I was teaching this, I would have said, you know, part of our problem is it's pretty good and comfortable here. Things are going well, deals are closing, the economy's good, housing prices are increasing, 
If I want a job, I want to take a little time off, I take a little time off. I want to travel, travel. So, so for us, here's what he's saying is, listen, to those that are out there, you don't have much. He said, good news for you, this isn't the final destination. For those of us who are kind of clinging on it and going, I don't really know if heaven's going to be a lot better than this. There are moments where you go, this is heaven. He says, no, that's not the case at all. You're never going to be happy permanently here because you weren't designed to be happy here. You get glimpses, moments of happiness, but that's only to cultivate your, your thirst for heaven. So he comes right to them and he said, listen, what I want you, I, I understand your situation. Do you? This is temporary, alien, stranger. He's re, the term, he's recalibrating. One of the authors says he's reorienting their self-understanding with respect to the society in which they live. Never think that you're going to be loved, accepted, that the world's just going to go, oh, you love Jesus, that's great. We've been waiting all our life for you. The, the night before Jesus was crucified, he got the guys together and he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. Paul, in his writing, Jesus in his teaching, Peter here is reminding us what, what kind of experientially we know, now a little bit different here maybe, but throughout the world we understand it. They tell us, I don't know who understands or knows or figures this out, but they tell us that there are approximately 10 times more Christians martyred at this point right now in history than at the time that Peter's writing here in that first century. That that's going on all over the world. And that there's persecution here. And, and he's saying, listen, you're going to live in this world. And because you're not of the world, you're counterculture to the world. There are going to be those times when you're going to have those people around you who are scoffers. Uh, those people who are, we might say in a, in a nice way, putting you down. They're, they're leveling charges against you. So he said, that's the situation. I want you to get the situation. Here come those specific commands. And they're going to go from here to the end of the book. And because you're my beloved, because we are fellow brothers and sisters and co-workers with Christ, because we are aliens and strangers, this is what I want you to do. Verse 11, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against you. Uh, abstain, to, to stay away from, to avoid. It's in a tense that has the sense of an ongoing do not indulge. This is an ongoing process. It's not just for today, it's for while you're here. I want you to abstain from fleshly lusts. Well, well what are those? And immediately our mind kind of goes to a, a sexual desire. And it may be that, but it's, it's that, but certainly much more. Galatians chapter 5. Why don't you turn there? Page 633 in the Bible that we gave you. 
This is Paul writing, and he's writing about uh, walking in the Spirit. And he's talking about the, the, the pitting of the Spirit against the flesh. He says in Galatians 5.16, the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. There's that waging of wars. Verse 18, if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Christ fulfilled that law. Now here are the deeds of the flesh. So Peter says it this way, abstain from fleshly uh, lusts. What are those fleshly desires? Here they are, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Things like these that I forewarned you about. We've already talked about this. But here's what should be present. Here's the counterbalance to that. Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Peter's saying, listen, in this world, as aliens and strangers, there is this war that's going on. The war between the world and the value of the world. The the war that Satan and his demons and the flesh are, are waging against you, even as followers of Christ. And he said, I want you to abstain from this. Don't love the world is the way that that John writes it in 1 John 2.15. Don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And here's the same idea. The world is passing away. There's a temporariness there. And he said, here's this paradox. Everything around me looks to be very much alive. And it looks to be very real. So much so that in our minds, at this point of physical death, we get a sense that we're moving from the land of the living to the land of the dying. And he said, nothing could be further from the truth. You're in the land where everything is dying, and you will go to the land where everything lives forever. Now, while you're here, verse 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers. Keep that behavior. Some of your translations will say conduct. It's our day-to-day pattern of life. It's the way we live, the way you conduct yourself. Keep your behavior excellent among the unbelievers. Why? So that in the things in which they slander you. Now, that's the implication, that here comes the slandering, the lying, Verbal, it may be physical. In those things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in that day of visitation. Here's what he's saying. The way you live makes it different. Because you're a follower of Christ, I ought to see a difference in you. I should be able to look at you, follow you around, and see the way you conduct your family, your work, Everything. So Jesus said it in Matthew 5, 16. We go back to this over and over again. Let your light shine in such a way that people see your good works. Uh, Here's my privilege to make the invisible God visible. 
They look at you. Here's what he's saying. They look at you. And in the midst of the most horrific, difficult circumstances of life, in this case, in the midst of their slandering and persecuting you, there's something in you. The way you respond, the way you suffer, the way you live is so compelling that it may, not a guarantee. He's not saying this will work for sure. We see the same idea if you want to turn a page to, to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. He's talking about suffering and hardship. He says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. He's saying there's something about it that as the world looks at you and the people around you look at you, there's something distinctive and different about you, especially in how you handle difficult circumstances, so much so that they may, may not, and no time frame's given here. doesn't say it's going to happen next week or right away. That's what you get all of a sudden. All of a sudden, you get a couple that, that comes in, and, and let's, let's put the blame on the guy here. And the guy's at fault, and now he said, what do I need to do? And, and, and then all of a sudden, it's, what do I need to do, and what else? How long do I need to do it? Okay? Is this a week deal? A three-week deal? No. It's about getting whoever it is, getting in the right position that God would have us in for the rest of our lives. Wives submit to husbands, husbands love wives. So that maybe on that day, some will be converted, verse 12, and they will glorify God. They'll worship him. They'll see him for who he really is, as Lord, Master, Savior, Redeemer. And their one, at least part of the, what God uses to convert them, is the way you respond. So, so my friend Larry Wright used to say it this way. You may be the only Bible that some people ever see. It's the same way of saying it. People are looking. You get that, right? So, so the minute you say to somebody, hey, you want to join me? You want to go to Redemption Church on Sunday? And they go, I don't believe so. Or you say, listen, I don't know what you're doing for lunch today, but you want to go to this priority living thing, this Bible study? The minute you say that, they are justifiably now and appropriately, they're looking at you and they're judging your life. They're throwing you under the microscope. And whereas you give yourself the benefit of the doubt, they aren't going to. And what God's saying in his word is, as they look at you in these most difficult circumstances, you're going to talk in a minute about submitting to government, which to me is just, is just like this most difficult thing. He said, as they watch that and they see you, especially in the government situation that they have, that's a government that's persecuting them, taxing them, beating them up, and you respond in this submissive, obedient way, somebody watching says they're nuts or they got something I don't have. And the intent is to have them say they got something I don't have. And I want that. And what is it? And that's what Peter introduces. Let's get to the primary text for, for this morning. Verse 13, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as one in authority or to governors who are set out by the king. And here's why that government exists, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who are good. 
The, the word submit, it's a military term. It means to arrange in a formation under the commander. To, to line up under. Now, I'm going to be autobiographical here because I've got, a, in my mind, a lot of time invested in this word submit. And it produces a, a, a gut response. It's interesting. It, it's less of a gut response for me now, which my assumption is that's based on some level of maturity that God's doing in my life. But I can tell you, God saved me. Paul, uh, uh, Larry was teaching the book of Romans. We got to Romans 13. Ro Romans 13 is kind of the classic passage on government where Paul writes, but every person is to be in subjection to his governing authorities. Here's why. For there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So he's saying, here's the deal. Government is a delegated authority of God. And when I'm disobedient to government, I'm disobedient to God. God has at least four institutions that, that touch most of our lives, if not all of them. Government, the church, family, and work. So he has a structure within the church. Elders, those within the body, in the family, husband, wife, kids. It's not very complicated what he says. Kids obey your parents. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to your husbands. So if I'm not loving my wife, my problem here is not just that I'm sinning against her, I'm sinning against God. Why, if I'm not submitting to my husband, I'm not submitting to God. These are the delegated authorities that he's put in place, and here's the authority structure in them. Now, here's what I'm saying about the word. I've learned so much over this word because the minute I hear the word, I want to go, well, what are the exceptions? So, so the, the very first time that I, that I taught wives submit to your husband, we're driving home, and uh, I said, what would you think of that? And Susan said, well, I don't, I don't know. And I said, well, I thought, it, I, I, I thought it went okay, but half of the people there didn't seem to receive the word very well. <laughs> and she said, really? And I said, that's right. And, and, and uh, she said, well, that might be. And I said, uh, why do you think that is? And she said, well, maybe it was the way you taught it. And I said, I doubt that. Uh, <laughs> retrospect, it probably was. But, but, but I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. That's the bottom line. So if I'm sitting with a, with a group of women, wives submit to your husbands, what does that mean? What about the exception? What if he, you never met him, you know, if you knew him, Oh, the guy you freely chose, that one? Yes, that guy. Well, if you, if you knew him, well, I had the same flinch the very first time. I just submit to the government. And I mean, I'm going up. I'm going, well, what if they? What if they don't do what they're supposed to do? But what's the government here that I, I can't appreciate the way they, they spend my tax dollar? What if there's waste? Well, he says, pay your tax. Are there some exceptions? Sure. They're rare. That's why they're called exceptions. But in essence, unless the government asks you to sin or commands you to sin, 
or forbids you to do something God commands, then other than that, I submit to them. Why? He said, because that government is established by me. And you know what? That's their problem, and I'll deal with their sin. You submit to them. That's your role. You say, that's right. For me, again, I, maybe, maybe you all are way beyond that, but for me, the first time I heard that, I had, a, I had a real visceral response to that. So if we put it in this situation, here's what he's saying. All the kings, all the governors, the ones that are hauling you off, the ones that are beating you, the ones that are abusing you in all sorts of ways, that government, those guys, you submit to them. In our context, the president, the Congress, the state, the local representatives. Now, the, now the government's job, and he talks about it, government's job is to execute justice, to preserve peace and order so there's not chaos in the land, to praise those who do well, conduct themselves well. Therefore, for us, there should be a, a, con, a constant prayer request that's going up to God, in, in essence, thanking him for government and praying that they would indeed fulfill the, the desires that he has for them and role for them as we submit to them. But it's not, I submit if. You get, our relationship with the government is the same as that husband and wife. She's not, we don't say to her, you submit if he does all these things well. The challenge is not if he's in his role. The biggest challenge is when he isn't. If he's this smart, debonair, everything. We're going to talk about this on November 4th. So that is either going to increase or decrease church attendance that day. But we'll talk about husband and wife and give you your last marching orders before the election. But we'll talk about that. Sub submit is what he says. Submit why? What's well, the same idea? Verse 12, for such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's the same concept that you saw up in verse 12. That as people look at you, slander you, gossip against you, lie about you, maybe physically persecute you, that it's God's will that that hostility would be stopped against you. And here's how, by you doing right and then God intervening, that you submit to authority. I, I, I come at it again and when I, I, God saved me, as I said, I heard this early on, I responded against it, I, I thought, and I told Vince last week, and, and this just shows probably a lack of faith on my part, but I said, man, you're launching this thing, and all these new people are coming in week one as you talk about submission to government, but it's a, maybe just a great opportunity to proclaim that gospel and to show that truth and show that difference, and especially as you see hostility more and more and more toward the, the fundamental of the evangelical Christian churches to say, we're the best citizens, we're talking submission all over the place and doing it. I uh, started going to Larry's Bible study and continued going. And after a period of years, uh, God grew me, began to redeem me and use me in a variety of ways. And one of those was just to, to persistently talk to people about Christ. And you do that in a bunch of different ways as God opened doors. And one of the tools I used was Larry's Bible study. So I had two guys in my office that I called or, or, or physically eye to eye every week 
to go to Larry's Bible study for maybe a year, year and a half. Larry at that point was back in the book of Romans. He's we're coming to Romans 13. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to call him this week. Both of those guys called me and said, you've called for a year, year and a half, two years, every week. You didn't call this week. The way it is, I'd like to come this week. This is my week to come. And Larry started with, submit yourself to government, everyone. And about five minutes into it, one of them got up and left, and the other one was a little more polite, stayed through it, said, this is the biggest as, as Joe Biden would say, stuff he's ever seen. This was the biggest stuff he'd ever seen. And he said, I'd never be involved in this again. And it's kind of what you would expect from somebody who doesn't know Christ. Because the minute you hear submit, you're going to say, nobody's going to tell me what to do. Right? Wet paint. Really? Yep. It is. I mean, it's just that over and over and over again. And that doesn't go away. That was back in the garden, wasn't it? The serpent comes along and says, really, can you trust God? Really, can you trust him? Because he really said that. He's just messing with you. Get this fruit. Doesn't it look good? Don't you think it tastes good? It would make you like him. Right? And so now, even for those of us who know Christ, that's that struggle. And he's saying, listen, you've got to understand you're in a war here. It's not a war of flesh and blood. It's a spiritual battle. Didn't leave you alone. I left you with the spirit and the word and prayer. You're in the midst of this. If I rebel against the government, in this case, I'm rebelling against God. He said, I've placed these guys here. Just, just look at, look how polarizing. I'll just give you the three names. Bill Clinton, George Bush, Barack Obama. Just the last three have lit, literally, we've seen the country essentially split right down the middle. And if you're on the other side of wherever they are, it's not just that they're an opponent. It, 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 you hate them. You can't stand them. I talk to people all, all the time on both sides of these. George Bush was a great example. Those guys, he kind of went, you know, strategery. You know, he's not maybe the sharpest knife in the drawer, but he's the guy and he's there. And, you know, people go, he can't even. And then they just launch. Certainly, certainly this president is as polarizing as any they've been. And he said, listen, here, here's our role. And, and my, my, my sense would be, I don't know, my sense would be that there would be a chunk of you who, who casting a ballot, might cast a ballot and, and, and vote for officials. Maybe you voted for guys that aren't in office right now. And your, office, and, and your position, I didn't, I didn't pick this guy. Okay, you didn't. God did. God placed these guys in this position. And my role is to submit to them. It's not to say, well, I'm going to hold back until we get the guy that I want, and then I'll submit to that. See what, the, see what we're saying? That's always our role on submission. I'll submit when everything's the way I want. Well, that's not really the biggest test of submission. It's like loving. I'll love her when she, I'll love her if. He said, no, this is the call. I want you to submit to them. Why? Well, because they're established by me, one, 
Two, I've told you to. Three, on a practical basis, this might be the way that I silence them, that I bring people, that your life becomes so compelling that, that you become just, just as light that they can't, they can't resist it. They can't stay away from it. Maybe they start as intrigued by you. They think you're almost odd. And they get to know you. No, it's not odd. And it's not just you. It's supernatural. That's what he's saying. Verse 16, I want you to act as free men, but do not use your freedom for covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. He said, I want you to understand that you're free. But you don't have the freedom to do wrong. You're a bond slave. Here's the irony of that language. You're free and yet a slave. And because you are in Christ, you're free from your sin and the consequence of your sin and free to do the will of God. Don't abuse it. It's not a license. I take my freedom and I put myself in bondage to God. I was enslaved in bondage to the world system and to sin, but not anymore. And he says, my role now is like that of Christ. Have the mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. My life is transformed. We, we may, we've, we've kept this in front of you. When Paul starts writing about humility, there's not even a Greek or Latin word that's translated or means humility. This is so foreign to who we are as, as humans. I want you to be like him. Who? Like Christ, the suffering servant. We see over and over again as they beat him, as they crucified him. He submitted. At any point, he could have stopped that. But submit to them. And he says, I have this, this plan for all of your life and all of these systems, and it includes submitting, submitting, and, 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 you, and, and submitting to Christ, becoming a bondservant of Christ, and in that I now become his hands and feet wherever he places me. It now begins to affect everything I do. It affects how I park. It affects, when I go, I, I can't, I don't get going to the grocery store taking a cart, taking your stuff, putting in your car, and leaving that cart in the middle of the parking lot. I don't understand it. I don't know how selfish you can possibly be. I, and now, I'm, I'm a lazy dog, so what do I do? I park next to the place where they push the thing. <laughs> I, just, I just do it. I either go, there's two of them over at the Fry's. At McQueen and Warner, there's one or two places I park all the time, and it's right to where the cart goes. Why? Because I don't want to go schlepping across the whole parking lot with this cart, but there's something fundamentally wrong. That's what he's saying. It and I know that sounds silly, but it affects everything. That's there for a reason. You aren't the exception. It matters to you. People are watching. Those things, those things matter. That's why he says, here's the summary, that's why he says in verse 17, honor all people. Be courteous to all people. Be kind to all people. If it says don't walk there, don't walk there. You may have a thousand reasons why you should walk there. It's common courtesy. It's when somebody, we, we were, Sandy and I were out, it was her birthday, and we're out for dinner the other night. Six times I said to the server, thank you, and six times he said to me, no problem. No problem is not the answer to thank you. 
thank you, the answer is what? Why can't we do this? That can't be that hard. It's common courtesy. It's holding a door. Honor all men. Be kind to all men. Be courteous and respectful to all people at all times and all places. Hit a nerve. Love the brotherhood. It's an obligation to fellow Christians. It's a strong, deep love for them. That we care about people in general, but we care specifically about one another, those who say they're Christians. Then he says, fear God. I honor him, I love him, but there's a reverence toward him. I don't, I don't fear or revere all men or brothers, but I fear God. It's a respect for God. And then he says, honor kings. It's like he goes, fear God and love there, but like the king, this is to a king reading this, it might be too subtle for us. But I think the king would get it. He put the king on the same plane with all people. Honor him. So, so here I am. I fear God. I understand who he is. And now it affects all my life. So now I can love. May not always like. But I can love my brothers and sisters. And I will honor all of the people in my life. As you're talking the role of the government, let me just give you a couple of things. I, I, uh, with an election coming, uh, it's too late to register to vote, but we, I'm getting a lot of questions just about voting and, you know, how would Jesus vote? I don't really, well, I do think I know on some things, but maybe not everything. But, but, but we should, as we vote, be concerned about what God says and God's values as we look at that ballot or as we look at candidates. My friend uh, Jamie Rasmussen, who is the senior pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church, is doing a whole message today on voting, and he was a, a bit apprehensive about the pushback he'd get, and I said, gosh, Jamie, I just don't see how you can get much pushback on this, because all you were saying is, I, I won't tell you, this is my words, now, not his, I won't tell you who to vote for, but I don't mind telling you how to vote. There was a moment in the debate the other, the other night, and the uh, moderator was, was trying to make it a, a faith issue, and I'm all right with that. But she was saying, both of you are Catholics. How, how does your Catholic faith uh, affect your relationship or your position on abortion? And, and Congressman Ryan finally said what to me makes all the sense of the world, which was his introductory statement, which was, my faith has to affect everything that I do. Okay? And, and we've said that. It, it should affect, if it should affect the, the kind of parent you are, the kind of neighbor you are, whether you're pushing the grocery cart away, it ought to affect how you govern. And he talked about abortion, and he talked about a stand that life begins at conception and how he carried that through. The vice president made what is, to me, to me the most paradoxical statement of all. He, and that was, he's, he said, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I never would want to legislate toward it. And, I, and, and to me, the question I always want to ask at that point is, why are you opposed to it? And it's always in this context of, I want to defend the, 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 the weakest in our society. There's nobody weaker, no one who has a less voice than the unborn. I think God's really clear on abortion. So there's two or three issues that I think you can speak to. I think abortion, I think in terms of marriage, God has a real clear view on that. I, I think uh, the, the, the Bible is concerned about, about freedom and responsibility and so those are important issues for us to look at. 
And here's the thing about, we had a wonderful moment at the Arcadia campus on Wednesday night. Tyler's teaching a four-week class on, and I can't remember for the life of me the title of it, something in politics. It's either our faith in politics or something in politics. And uh, I was up there as part of the the very first time. We're talking about civility in in this whole process. But the point I was making, because there's a, you see two poles. You see those of you who are saying, boy, if we can just elect the right guy, everything's going to be perfect. Well, that isn't going to happen. There's the other side, and alarmingly getting bigger, that says, politics is dirty and nasty, and I don't want to be involved in it. Well, at the very least, I should vote. And, and here, this is important now. This is almost always, if you get involved in issues you're going to get pulled into politics. So if your kid's coming home with stuff from school and you say, I don't like school, well, you're going to get pulled right into a principal, superintendent, school board. If, if you've got you know, a strip club going up down the street, you don't want it down the street, well, you're going to go right to the city council, right to zoning, city council, and all that goes through that. Politics is not something dirty and filthy, sinful, sinful people in it. But God has given us and blessed us, not, boy, not to be in Nero's Rome, but, but to be in this country that we're in with an amazing system. I'll give you, these are, these are my lines and then we're gone. What makes America great, this is why I'm probably never going to get elected to anything. What makes America great are not the American people. You do not have a gene that's better than every other people in the world. What makes America great is the system we're in. And that's the challenge now, is to preserve that system of freedom, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Not guaranteeing everybody happiness, but a pursuit of it, a shot. So you need, you need to be engaged. And this, ba- I, I, this ballot, they keep sending me, they must be spending a billion dollars sending me stuff on what these propositions and stuff are all about. But you need to be informed and wise. And look, and and I think it's fair to say, are there biblical principles at at play in these individual candidates' lives and in the propositions that are in front of you? But let's say you vote everything here and everything here wins, your response is to submit. Why? Because then I submit to the government. I'm submitting as to the Lord. And that's the result of a transformed heart. That transformation was taking place and took place because of what happened on Calvary. And that's where we stop, boom, right here and every week. I remind you what Christ did in the cross. So Jake's going to come lead us in communion, the band, in our time of worship. Let me pray as they come and join us. Father, thank you that uh, you changed our hearts. And while there are amazing things that await us in heaven, you've left us here. And our heart still is, is in a struggle, in war against the flesh, spirit and flesh. Father, we pray for the country, the candidates, the president, the Congress, state legislator, legislature, legislation. Father, thank you for that. With the town, make us the best citizens in this country. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.